Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. We want to welcome everyone to our Sunday morning worship gathering. My name is Ben Wickle. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before Steve comes up and, and takes us through the, uh, teaching the Word of God, I, I want to take just a couple minutes and give a little bit of a, a purpose and some vision behind like why we do Sunday mornings. Like what's, what's the main goal for Sunday mornings? I'm going to start off by reading a passage from 1 Corinthians 12. It won't be up there, so you'll have to tune in. You'll have to listen in. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God is, he gives the body, he's, he's, he's given us a plurality of, of gifts and activities and services so that the person and presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is revealed when we gather like that is our, that's why we're here. It's not that we come to get entertained or we come to feel comfortable or we have like an excellent service flow. We are here. What we need most is a revelation or a manifestation of the Spirit of God. We, Jesus is the head. And, and so we, we don't want him just to be the, 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 our honorary guest, we, we want him to be the master of ceremonies. We want him to even lead our services. And so that begs the question, what does that look like? What does that look like? And thankfully, the Apostle Paul, just a couple chapters later, he gives a little bit of practicals to provide, provide some clarity of like, how do we see Jesus revealed so we can encounter his presence in a service. So in 1 Corinthians 14, again, it's not up there, so pay attention. Listen as I read this out. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation of tongue. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that you all may be learned, so that you all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, if you joined us last week, you, we, we got to experience everything that Paul prescribed 
in the inerrant, authoritative word of God. All of it. We, we, had, a, we, had, a, we, had, a, we had a we had a couple hymns. Our worship team led us through some, some singing. We had a, a lesson. Chris Jolly, our college pastor, came and brought a lesson. There was a revelation. Actually, a couple people came up and shared a revelation. Another term that we use for that is a, a prophetic word. It was, we were praying for Russia, Ukraine, that, the, the conflict there. And then lastly, we, have, we had someone, one of our college interns, come up and give a, a corporate tongue, which was immediately followed by an interpretation. So everything that we have, I mean, we, we, we did it all. We, we did it all. Now, even though our, our, our elders and our staff felt really, really good about that we were being biblically faithful to the, to the word of God, to what's prescribed in the word, we understand that there could still be people who come from various church backgrounds, and you might have been filled with maybe some questions. Maybe, maybe some of you were, there was like just an excitement, like, wow, I'm curious, there's an excitement there. And then I'm sure there are others that it might have been confusing. And so part of what I'm doing now this morning and what are the heart of our eldership, our team, our staff, is that number one is that we just take a moment to say, hey, look, we want to be faithful to the word of God, which is why I read some of those scriptures. And then secondly, and secondly, we want to continue to be available as pastoral staff. If you still have questions, come talk to us, myself, Steve, we get a handful of elders. We want to minister, we want, to, we want to bring about clarity, but also conviction of what the Word of God says. So here's really our, our, what you can expect from this church. That by faith, we're going to go after everything, all the things of God. That we see in the Word of God, making sure we do it in the ways of God. Like that, that's, if you wonder like what's the ministry philosophy of Enoch, that's it. By faith, we're gonna go after all the things of God that we see in the word of God, making sure it's done in the ways of God. Humility, love. That's what you can expect from us. That's our heart, amen? So here's what I'm gonna do. I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say a prayer over us and here's, here's what I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna encourage you guys, that this is your prayer, always. Lord, I, that you would want it, anything that God has for us. We want all that God has for us. All right, Steve, it's all yours. Thanks, Ben. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is uh, the only place uh, where God describes what the church bulletin should look like. You didn't know that, did you? It says, when you come together, let each one have one, or as the King James says, hath one. And then Paul proceeds to describe a whole bunch of different gifts and the manifestations of those gifts. Uh, We're not going to keep teaching on that this morning. However, um, it's really important for us as a body of believers to understand we are part of something that's not just human. We are part of something that is divine. We are like the Son of God who was fully divine and fully human. And throughout church history, we've had all kinds of people confuse those two things and go to one or the other, and we don't want to be those people. Now, having said all that, we're going to talk about some pretty serious things today. 
but we've got to have some humor. So I got a couple of jokes for you. My grandson did not give me these, they're, but they're not much more elevated than that would have been. <clears throat> so first one, and these are kind of Bible jokes, all right? When someone in the Bible times needed a boat made, what did the people in town say? I know a guy. Okay, I figured that would get that response. Okay. Who in the Bible knew the most people? Abraham knew a lot. Some of you may not get this at all if you don't know your Bible very well. That's okay. If you don't know, just say, what did he mean by a lot? Okay. Finally, what did Daniel tell his real estate agent? You don't know? I'd prefer a house without a den. Oh, that was good. I thought that was good. Come on. All right, well, we're, we're kind of finishing up uh, the I Believe for 2022, and the, um, our belief statement here is a little opaque. Uh, I believe 2022 will be a year of great advancement in developing our relationship with ourself. You go, what does that mean? Well, kind of a subtitle that we're going to be exploring for the next several weeks along that vein is this. Emotionally healthy discipleship. Uh, emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, one of my other titles, because I am a, I, I see everything out of my own experience. Uh, I lived in an agricultural community when I was uh, a kid, and the preacher always talked about farming illustrations, and I completely get them. And so I... Uh, was a luxury custom home builder for many, many years. And uh, we built houses for very, very, very demanding people uh, who had great expectations for their expensive houses that were being built. And um, I would say that part of what I want to talk about is improper building materials today. And relate that to the whole idea that true spirituality, true spiritual maturity cannot and should not be divorced from emotional and relational maturity. And let, let me just say this right up front. Emotional and relational maturity does not mean that you're spiritual either. There, but here's kind of the tragedy and the irony. There are some people that don't believe in Jesus that are actually much more relationally and emotionally healthy than people that are followers of Jesus. And that's okay because you know what Jesus does? He invites all of us to come as we are with all of our inherited baggage, right? So he welcomes into his family a really broad net. But 
there's some problems. And let me go back to something we started last year, and we're going to... Some of you won't go, oh, that sounds all new to me. Well, I'm, I'm repeating myself. But I'm giving you my definition of disciple-making. Because I want to revisit it, and I wanna, we're going to emphasize some of the components of this. Disciple-making is the intentional process of training believers to be devoted followers of Jesus, who, through accountable relationships, increasingly resemble Him and reproduce other disciples. Okay. A phrase that I want you to lodge in your head is this. And it's an answer to a question. So remember the question. Why did Jesus not talk a lot about leadership? It seems that we, in so many church circles, if you, if, like I've said before, if, you go, if there were Christian bookstores, and they're not anymore, but if there were, there'd be big sections on leadership. And there'd be very, very small and maybe impossible sections to defi- decide are find on discipleship. But to Jesus, discipleship was training for leadership because every disciple is expected to disciple someone else, which is actually a leadership activity. That's it. That's what we're called to be, is disciples who are disciple makers. That's all I have to say about leadership. That's really all Jesus had to say about it. And the reason he had nothing more to say about it is because this, the goal of discipleship is eventually so that you and I look like Jesus. We resemble him. We have, there's identity confusion on the part of people meeting us. They begin to get us confused with Jesus. Now that hasn't been the big accusation about the church So what's the problem? Well, the problem is the building whose foundations are shallow and whose exterior cannot endure the storms of life. Uh, they're emotionally fragile and relationally shallow disciples. That's the problem. I'm, today's kind of the... This, this is the forensic examination of construction failures. It was something that I loved going to because I didn't want to go to the seminar and be the exhibit of the failure that happened on one of my houses. And there were some amazingly colossal, disastrous, multi-million dollar problems that I really didn't want to have to experience. And so let's go to a text in the scripture that really almost parallels exactly what I'm talking about. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to start at verse 10, but I'm going to give you a little talk context of, of this before we get into the text. Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He says, here's the subject of this letter. I mean, he kind of starts out, this is kind of one of the major themes of my, my letter to you guys. And this is one of his longest letters. And so it's obvious that Paul is very, very sincere about this. And he's very troubled by it. He is actually really troubled. 
and he deeply loves this church, but he is also talking to him like a dad to a teenager that's really messed up bad. That's really what's going on here. And he says, there are divisions and quarrels and jealousy. There is emotionally shallow, immature believers. That's the new contemporary version of how you would describe what he's describing and what he's dealing with. And so in verse 10, he says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. Verse 10 of chapter 3. I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one, and listen to this, he's, he's now talking about, hey, I'm the foundation guy. I'm the guy that pours the concrete, puts in the rebar, the steel, I dig the footings, I grade the lot, that's how I start, then I do the others, I just gave you the reverse. Uh, so so what, what is going on is he's going, but I'm not the guy that gets to do all the finishing work. I'm not, do, I'm not the trim carpenter, I don't put in the cabinets, I don't even put in the plumbing. That's, that's my exegesis there. But each one, each one of these next line of builders should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And again, Paul is constantly referring back to our salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Through, I, this is the famous text where we hear... I preach nothing, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's the foundation that we have. And we have that foundation. And evangelical churches all over North America have that foundation. But it's not where we need to stop. Nor shall we. So let's go on. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even only though as one escaping through the flames. Okay. I was uh, in England uh, right after my dad passed in 2001. His, my grandfather came from England. My dad had always talked about England, never got there. So right after he passed, I decided I'm going to England whether I need to or not. And we spent two weeks just traveling all over England. And I had the privilege one day, I, I kept looking for houses under construction like we do here in the Raleigh area. You can throw a rock and find a house under construction somewhere. And, uh, but in that part of the world, I couldn't find one. I mean, I, we were... We had our little rental car, and we were just getting lost all over the English countryside, which I recommend. Uh, you don't need a GPS. Just go get lost, and you'll just feel like you're in a BBC movie. 
And so, and so we're, we're driving around, and I see this house in the distance. And I can tell that it's under construction because the roof isn't finished. Or at least it's been burned down, and, but I can see a I can see trucks, and you know, you, you know, when you're in the business, you kind of can see that it's under construction, even though it was a long way off. And I said, we've got to go see that house. And so I eventually got there, and I walked in, and I, I was just dumbfounded at how they were building this house. I kept thinking to myself, I, I don't think I understand what they're doing here. I, wow. Uh, finally, I, I, I say to one of the workers, I said, uh, can you tell me, is, is the builder on site? And he said, yes, of course, as if that was a dumb question, which in America, it often is a dumb question because no, builders don't stay on site. Uh, so he was on site, and I, I, I went with him. I met him, and I introduced myself, and I said, oh, I'm a builder from the United States. And the first thing out of his, out of his mouth, he says, oh, you're one of those guys that builds, builds throwaway houses. Now, he was British, and I couldn't understand what he said. So I, I actually asked him to insult me one more time. And then I got the insult, and he wasn't smiling. And uh, I was thinking, this is going to be a little awkward. I said, yeah, we, we don't build them like you do. He said, you can say that again. So I did. We don't build them the way you do. I am really impressed. I was standing on the second floor, and they had these steel I-beams. Now, an, an I-beam looks like an eye. And they were taking concrete that was about four to five inches thick and slipping it between each floor of the building as the subflooring. There was no wood in the house. The Stonemasons had laid stones that were about this deep and about this wide. And he just, he began to explain. He says, this is why our houses stand for 1,500 years. Do you know why there's a mortgage on your house for 30? It's because the bank's figure is going to collapse in about 50 to 70 if it's not remodeled. Which is why I don't like to buy old houses. Uh, but... The whole point is they build them forever. They're building, that, that's why a house that's built by an English master builder will endure for 1,500 years. Now, here's a really fascinating thing about this. And this is all going to, I'm going to bring this home because this isn't a construction class. Well, in a way it is. Because you are the builders. You're, I'm teaching you how not to have structural failures. Because you're supposed to be leaders because you're supposed to be disciples who make disciples. So that makes you a, a leader, right? Everybody raise their hand. Say, I am a disciple maker. Therefore, I am a leader. Amen. Okay. So this, this class on construction fails, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to examine. And, and we, we may take a few weeks to do this. this. This course may, for you to get your continuing education credits, uh, you, you may have to come back next week. In fact, you will. You will. All right. Now, I'm going to give you the problem 
Is the buildings whose foundation are shallow and whose exteriors cannot endure the storms of life. Two, the major structural flaw in your building is poor materials. Three, the major reason for poor materials is poor inspection standards and code guidelines. We inspect and measure the wrong thing. And then finally, the correct building standards of spiritual maturity. And we're going to, I'm going to try to get through all of those as quickly as I can. But I don't want to rush it because I really want to make sure I've said it and I've said it again. Jealousy and quarreling were the two characteristics that Paul keeps using over and over again. Can I just tell you that jealousy or envying and quarreling or argument, today we call it conflict. I'm having conflict with someone. And we are in, I'm going I'm to pick on some people I dearly, dearly love, uh, and actually are a lot of our historic roots, but I'm going to pick on Baptist. One of the great growth strategies of the Baptist is to have a fight. And they just go start a new church. Okay, we got some Baptists here. I'm, I'm sorry I offended you. I'm sorry I offended you, but you know, the fact of the matter is we have a, we have a history of being a quarrelsome, divisive, jealous, envious bunch. And in fact, uh, one of my mentors who was talking with a spirit-filled Catholic cardinal, and he said to him, um, Bob, um, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, this move of God that's happening among all you Protestants. He says, you know, we only have one Pope to deal with, but you guys have about 10,000. The major structural flaw in many, many churches and many, many moves of God are we have, we're putting poor foundations and we're putting poor veneers. Let me give you a definition of a veneer. I, at my house, if you were to come to my house, we have what we builders in the common parlance say is called lick and stick. Lick and stick. That doesn't sound very structurally sound, does it? This is on my own house, okay? It's a confession. I don't have real river stone in my house. I have a concrete formed stone that's about this thick, and it's been basically glued on with cement. And in fact, if you have a brick house, which you think is so structurally profoundly better, that's called a veneer too, and it is non-structural. It is a veneer. In other words, let me give you a definition for veneer. A covering, something with a decorative layer, a facade, a front, a false front, a show, an outward display, appearance, false appearance, outward appearance, impression, image, semblance, posture, pose, guise, disguise, mask, masquerade, pretense, charade, illusion, gloss, camouflage, false color, smoke screen, clever, cover, and cloak. I won't belabor it anymore. All right. 
Can you see, to, to, for me to build with real stone as a foundational element for my, and a structural element, which is what those castles along the coast of England are built out of, massive stones, that's what the pyramids are built out of that have lasted, oh, I don't know, somebody tell me, 3,000, 4,000 years. It's a long time. They've endured because they were built out of really substantial buildings. And can, can I just tell you, God's not wanting to build anything less exacting than that in his people. Okay? And so, I could have called today's message Arrested Development, but I really didn't like that comedy. But I did like their point, is there were just a whole bunch of people in this family that were completely dysfunctional. They were a mess. And they were all basically immature infants that had been incredibly successful. And so part of what we're wanting to look at today is the idea that some of us are 20-year-old Christians, but others of us have been your old Christians 20 times. I meet them all the time. I have met the enemy and he is me. That, that, this, this is, uh, I don't want the spirit of today's talk to be, I don't want us to woke, walk away like, oh man, I'm under condemnation. But I do want us to walk away sobered. When I was, when I, I don't, I don't want us to walk away like I was when I was a kid hoeing tobacco. Have, have, does anybody know what I mean when I say hoeing tobacco? Raise your, shake your head if you do, shake your head if you don't. Okay, hoeing tobacco. Gosh. Okay, you know what a hoe is? A garden hoe? So before herbicides, all you ag majors, you're going, gosh, I'm glad I didn't live when he was a kid. Uh, we had to hoe row crops, including corn and tobacco, because the weeds would take over them in some parts of the world, like North Carolina. And it was usually July. That was always a special time. It was all so cool and breezy. <laughs> and I was, this is what 10-year-olds did, by the way. I think somebody should have called child services. But, but anyway, they didn't. And my brother and I would be out hoeing the tobacco along a long row that we couldn't see the end. And sometimes I'd just go so frustrated and tired and I wouldn't pay attention. And I... You're hoeing, and tobacco plants are about this far apart. And so you're hoeing the space between them to get the weeds. But sometimes you actually start cutting tobacco. It, it doesn't take much. It, it, it's as easy to cut a tobacco plant as it is a weed. Which always made it very clear and understandable why the Lord said, don't remove the tares with the wheat. Uh which is another, another subject, but it's, it's, it's related. But the whole idea is this. I don't want to be an inaccurate hoer today. But I do want to get at the weeds that could really choke out the life that's in us. And so relational and emotional health are the foundations of our faith. Without them, we actually have pretty much a counterfeit faith. And the whole world is telling us this. 
And you go, well, Steve, you know, there's a lot of reasons the world doesn't like us. Well, yeah, there are, but some of them we give them on a platter. And I, when I say we, I'm not talking about necessarily the people in this room. But I am talking about the we as just us, the body of Christ. You go, well, I, I don't go to that church anymore, Steve. Oh, yeah, you are, you are part of it whether you like it or not. We are all part of it. We are, it's not us and them, it's just us. Amen? Please say that. It's not us and them, it's just us. All right. So, the poor inspection standards. Let's move to that point. We inspect and measure the wrong thing. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go to... um, 521 through 24. You've heard it said. You've heard that it was said to those of old. So Jesus is immediately setting it up. He's going, I'm making an exegetical and a hermeneutic correction. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago with Craig? I, I'm going to make a I'm going to make an adjustment in the way you interpret the Bible. You, sh- you heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. <coughs> and whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, uh, you sh- uh, Raka was also a word of deep contempt. Uh, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if, now, and here's what I want you to really focus on here. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. This is like the supreme commandment for life in God's church. And he's, what he's saying is, it's your responsibility to deal with the conflicts that you have before you talk to me at all. Don't you dare present an offering to God before you deal with the offering you need to make to your brother and sister. Spirituality with broken relationships is not spirituality. It's dysfunction and it's brokenness and Jesus is very clearly saying, I am upping the ante. You're ta- you think about murder the way you think about murder. I think about murder the way I think about murder. And when I have hostility and unforgiveness and jealousy and envy with my brother and sister, I am in the same category. I'm, you say, well, is Jesus making it a lot harder? No, he's not. He's telling you this is the way you should live so that you don't get to murder. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. I'm training you so that the problems with all of this is these sin and iniquity escalate all the time. And, And so what are some of the emotional dysfunctions? Well, I'm going to give you four or five here. 
We, we capitulate, and I use that word specifically because when you're in building, you always have options. And one of the options, and American builders choose it all the time because we could build the way the British builders do, but we couldn't get mortgages on the houses, and you couldn't either, so, and we have to have appraisals compared to the same square footage, and they really don't care what the building materials are. It's kind of the... So what we do is we compare ourselves with ourselves and we don't know how to build as houses as good as the English do. And so our first one is we capitulate to relational and emotional immaturity, underdeveloped character in favor of gifts and talents. We we promote those who have little relational or emotional maturity but have preferred public spiritual gifts like teaching or leading or miracles. And I don't have to, I mean, I just, all I have to do is talk about the failure of the month club in megachurches. It happens almost, uh, sometimes it feels like weekly. Hey, have you heard? No, I haven't. And so what we, what we do is we have really highly produced, slick communicators who often have an incredible gift of God in their life, but there is nothing underlying it. It's a veneer because their marriages are in disarray, their ability to deal with anybody. You, you know, they have these things called green rooms for these big shot preachers so they don't get to be disturbed. And every time I try to be undisturbed, the Lord goes, I need you disturbed. I need you to trust in me. This is not a production. This is you giving who you are. It's not about me being eloquent or The best preacher you've ever heard. That is so unimportant. I say it all the time. Nobody's ever been discipled from a pulpit. All I can tell you is point to where you need discipleship. Are you hungry enough to pursue it? Okay. So here's some things that reflect this spiritual and emotional and relational immaturity. We don't know what to do with anger or sadness. We're afraid of being honest in our relationships. We avoid conflict and want people to perceive us as nice people. Or we really enjoy conflict and confrontation. We often say yes when we really want to say no. We make assumptions about other people without really checking with them what they're thinking. We do for others what they should do for themselves. We're sarcastic and we're cutting. We participate in gossip. We experience relational stress and When we do, we pull away, or we shun, or we avoid, or we withdraw. I just heard a new term, we ghost people. That's a new term, I kind of like it. Uh, We have outbursts of anger and intentionally attempt to get the upper hand, or we use manipulation and subvert. I'm not talking about marriage, even though these are all art forms in marriage. We are jealous of others' success and talents and relationships and character. We let envy create lies and false narratives about others that we do not correct when we hear of them. We 
condone or promote false accusations. We're easily offended. We're touchy, sullen, stubborn, greedy. We're, in, we're practiced imposters, rarely if ever reveal our real self, inauthentic. Sometimes we're simply lazy or exactly the opposite. We're workaholics. Both can be driven by performance anxiety, interestingly enough. We become addicted to drink, drugs, and sex. Finally, and perhaps worst of all, we become judgmental and intolerant. The cancel and unfriending culture is the inordinate manifestation of a judgment syndrome. All of these are acute symptoms of relational and emotional immaturity. And I, the reason I know that is in some degree I've had all of those things in my life. Some worse than others. I was in the ministry when I was 21 years old. And somebody told me I needed to plant churches, and I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do that at 21. And so I did. And, and you know what? We planted a bunch of churches, most of them in Big Ten campuses across the Midwest. And um, there was about 10 or 11 of them. Some of them still exist. Some, most of them don't. But what, what was really interesting is that was actually just a gift. Because I... I had a whole lot of these things in my life. Now, the good news about all that is the Lord didn't let me stay in the ministry. Thank God. Now, he had to use kind of his very um, wise and prudent ways. He got me kicked out of the ministry because of a conflict with somebody who was actually... Uh, a spiritual father who did it really almost exactly the wrong way, like a lot of this stuff. But you know, part of it was the Lord says, I'm training you. I'm teaching you something. I want you to learn something. And so for the next uh, 35 years, I was someone who made disciples and didn't have a title of pastor. And the reason I didn't have a title of pastor is I really didn't know how to build things correctly. Is it already time to pull me off the stage? <laughs> okay. We capitulate to the rampant individualism of the American culture, and I'm just going to quote Eugene Peterson here. <coughs> individualism is the growth stunting, maturity inhibited inhibiting habit of understanding spiritual growth as an isolated self project. Individualism is selfism with a swagger, an enemy of the church of our reality. In other words, the church of your dreams is the enemy of the church of your reality. Jesus didn't assign us to be members of his perfect church. He assigned us to be members of his body, which is both human and divine. His church has now replaced his human bodily presence on the earth. We are his expressed representation. In other words, we are representing Jesus. That means you and that means me. The individualist is the person who's convinced that he or she can serve God without dealing with God. 
This is the person who is sure that he or she can love their neighbor without knowing their neighbor's name. This is the person who assumes that getting ahead involves leaving others behind. This is the person who, having gained competence, is knowing God or people or the world and using that knowledge to take charge of God or people or the world. America is the capital production engine of individualism. This salvation, this individual salvation that you each receive and each of you must receive it, was so you could become part of a family called the church. And it may be our biggest thing that we're dealing with over and over again. Because here's what happens. Well, you know, Dan, uh, you know did you hear what Ben said this morning? I didn't like that. Did you hear what Steve said? That goes against my understanding of the scripture. Well, it might do it, but that doesn't give you a right to go off and be your own little pope. Engage. So here's, I'm going to give you four. Quit playing just a second. I'm, I'm going to talk a little longer. I know we've got people out there. Let me, let me give you four pillars of, of the, the very, Warren is only doing what he's been told to do. And I told, I told Leslie to make sure I get off the stage. So she's doing her job. I'm just disobeying her this morning, just a little bit. Look, I, I think we all see the gravity of the situation. Uh, God is wanting us all to grow up. I could be talking about marriage counseling. I could be talking about conflict resolution. I could be talking about any number of things. All of these translates well into every interpersonal relationship that you develop. And the and here's the here's the let me I just want to wrap this up with a story. I I. I read this, I mean, I, I wrote this this weekend because it just so, it was such a moving thing for me. I've developed immunity to difficult children acting out horribly in public. Why? Let me tell you a story. In one of those impersonal and utterly forgettable airport terminals filled with futuristic steel and glass, filled with rows of seats that don't yet have those decidedly unfuturistic USB chargers, there was this very exhausted family. They were trying desperately to console a demanding, irritable, angry five, five or six-year-old daughter. This child was inconsolable or uncontrollable or unhinged. I couldn't really tell. I daydreamed of her being cast to the ground by a demon and me casting it out simply to quiet the ruckus. But... Regrettably, that didn't happen. Awaiting passengers sitting near this family began to surround, scan the horizon for open chairs as far away from the screaming kid as they could get. I'm pretty sure nearby passengers began to pray in earnest that this kid would not be on their plane. Well, at least I was. 
A few began to collect their things and move away, avoiding any eye contact with the distressed parents. Oh yes, did I mention that there were grandparents too? Neither of them looked all that distressed. In fact, Grandma even had a slightly amused smile in the corner of her mouth. She must have been thinking, justice at last. (laughs) A few terminal residents were mumbling about rotten kids and bad parenting, etc., etc. Unlike everyone else's instinct, though, both parents moved toward the child, soon followed by the grandparents. Despite the desperation that you could see in the parents' faces as they made furtive glances at the surrounding crowd, they didn't throw up their hands, abandon the kids, speaking to the crowd in agreement, saying, yeah, this kid's not worth it. Let's just turn her over to child services. No, they continued to work with the little girl. They stayed close by her. They spoke gently but firmly. Finally, exhausted, the child began to quiet down. With obvious embarrassment, the parents remained steadfastly attached to the child in the face of nearly unanimous annoyance of the surrounding airport crowd. So you ask, why are you immune to misbehaving children? Well, I realized as I sat there, and I was overcome, that that child very often has been me. And despite the mess and annoyance and poor representation of my Father in heaven, his evident lack of parenting skills based on my bad behavior, all of those in close proximity to me, the triune God has never left me nor forsaken me in the airport terminal of life. And he will not forsake you either. But he does want you to grow up. Now... Let's stand up and let's commit ourselves to be this journey. Can I just tell you, I, I spend most of, my, most of the time, those of us that do any kind of counseling, please stand up. The, 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 most of the time, any of us that do ministry, when we're counseling somebody, I would say 85% of it is relational conflict. And so some people become counselors because they have an inordinate threshold for pain. But actually, I'm just, but you know what? That's exactly what God wants all of us to develop. The ability to tolerate the screaming kid inside of all of us that doesn't know how to manage their own stress. To manage their... And some of us develop these patterns. This kid, actually, I could see out of her eyes. She knew what she was doing. And it probably was that mom and dad actually didn't know how to parent really well. And there were some strategies they needed. It wouldn't mean they were bad parents. They just didn't know how to be good parents. And I'm not sure we know how to be good spiritual disciple makers. Because we, we read the Bible. We pray. We teach you all those spiritual disciplines. But we don't teach you how to have healthy relationships and how to deal with conflict and how to manage your emotions so that you don't live anxiety-filled lives. And those things have nothing to do sometimes with spiritual disciplines. But they do have disciplines that if you practice them, they will change you. So the next few weeks, we're going to get into that. But here's what I want to invite you to. I want to invite you to commit yourself to grow up. 
emotionally, relationally, so that, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm this way and I don't have a lot of friends. So that when you're my age, you have so many friends, they call you nonstop during the week, which is what happened to me last week is I had 10 friends that called me that are old as I am. And I've known them for 40, 45 years because I've learned how to be a friend. And trust me, mostly I just saw projects when they were kids. I didn't see them as people because I had my ministry to fulfill. So look, spiritual immaturity is quite acceptable in God's house. There's no condemnation. But some of you get angry, you withdraw, you shun, you do all that stuff. You unfriend people even if you don't post it on Facebook. You do it in your heart. You ever look down through Facebook and you go, I don't like that person. That's spiritually immature and emotionally immature. Because Jesus said, look, you know, the, the, the following verses, he, he ups the ante. You know what he says? Love your enemies. Is that person your enemy? No, they're just kind of, ah. If you don't, if you can't find the res, reservoir, then we're going to be teaching you for the next few weeks on how to do this, okay? So let's commit as a body of believers. I want to invite the elders and life group leaders to come forward. I also want to invite you. You may want to come for this purpose, or you may just have a need for healing in your body or you're just dealing with some stuff this is a no shame zone this, this church has got to be a place where there's no judgment that, that list I gave you of all those bad things that's just stuff the Lord's dealt with me over the years okay so I, I'm a pro at, at being immature hopefully I've gained some maturity over my life but you know how mature you are is how, how quick it takes you to get back to peace when you're around somebody that's distressing. And if you learn how to walk in peace, and Jesus never lost his peace, ever. He's the prince of it. Lord Jesus, we want to commit as a body of believers to be the kind of people that the world looks at and goes, I've never seen anybody like you. I want to be the kind of people that change the world, not because I've got a vision to change the world, visions of grandeur, but I have a vision to love like Jesus loved. If that be you, just raise your hand. I'm going to raise mine. Lord, I want to sign up for that course, no matter how painful and self-examining disillusioning it might be for me to discover who I am and who I'm not. Lord, I pray that you would change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to continue to pray for people no matter what. We got an auction back here. Somebody's going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you again. It's for Mozambique. Pay way more than you need to. Bless you.